Hello and welcome to The Hot Seat. Today we're here with Professor Tony Travers to discuss some of the key political events of 2016. Welcome, Tony. Hi. When David Cameron announced the EU referendum in February, it was widely thought that we'd see a win for Remain. What do you think led to the vote for Brexit in June? Well, um, a lot of different things, I think. Um, I mean, it was unexpected, the result. I think not only unexpected, but by, by many people inside British politics and, you know, places like LSE, I think hard to envisage what a Leave vote would be like, what it would feel like, and how it would affect politics, and come back to that. But as to the causes, clearly, for some people, they just wanted to vote to leave the EU after decades of critical coverage of the EU in the British media. Uh, hardly surprising, some people picked up the idea they didn't like it. But beyond that, it's, it, it, in this binary vote where you could vote, and everybody's vote in the UK counted equally, which is unusual. In general elections, many people are in safe, safe constituencies for one party or the other, so their votes don't really count. So in this uh, vote where everybody's vote counted, people were able to express a number of views, often expressing grievance against government and against the political establishment over issues as broad as certainly a response to migration, definitely opinion polling shows that, separately uh, in some places where the economy hasn't functioned as well as in the places where it's functioned most effectively, a response to perhaps decades of economic decline. But beyond that, I think a whole range of different views. Some people will have voted to leave the EU on grounds that have little to do with the EU or any of those issues I've just listed. So it's complicated. Truth is, we've voted to leave and that's the big new challenge now for British government and politics. How has the vote to leave the EU changed the British political landscape, both at a national and local level? Well, the most obvious thing that the vote to leave did was to uh, encourage David Cameron immediately to resign. That led to, I think, what can at best be described as an internal bloodbath within the Conservative Party. It was an extraordinary few days uh, as the leading Conservatives jostled for position. In the end, uh, Theresa May became Prime Minister without a formal vote, uh, vote you know, within the Conservative uh, members and parties. So that was, in a sense, it became a sensible process at the end, but it didn't look particularly sensible when it was ongoing. In parallel with all of that, the uh, ructions that uh, resulted from the referendum result then triggered another bout of introspection and um, uncertainty about the Labour leadership, and so that triggered uh, further challenge to Jeremy Corbyn then, which, you know, the consequences of that are still with us. So uh, the immediate consequence of the Leave vote was to trigger significant political change inside the leadership of our major political parties. But of course, the medium to long term consequences we've not yet touched on because we've had to have a reconfiguring of Whitehall, the beginning of the process of thinking about how to leave the EU. And all of that uh, is going to go on for months, years ahead. Theresa May is committed to triggering Article 50 to leave the EU by March this coming year, 2017. But even that's only the beginning of a two-year process after which there will be further negotiations and deals. This is just the lower foothills of where we're headed.
Um, so does Brexit mean Brexit, to quote Theresa May's phrase? Well, it's true. Theresa May has said on a number of occasions, Brexit means Brexit. But of course, those who are in favour of the UK leaving the EU were not like a political party with a manifesto where you could see what they were promising and what they weren't. They were a collective of people, all on one side for that simple issue of leaving the EU, but otherwise with an array of different views. So some of them were strongly in favour of free trade and others were protectionist, frankly. Some want migration, others want much less migration and so on. So the question of what Parliament votes for when it comes to any kind of vote, if there is a vote, on triggering Article 50 is an interesting one. Now, uh, the Supreme Court uh, will be the arbiter of whether or not Parliament has a role and a vote in uh, the triggering of Article 50. The Prime Minister has argued that it can be issued using the royal prerogative, so the powers of the Crown in effect, whereas Parliament and indeed originally uh, Gina Miller's uh, challenge in the High Court, which has now gone through to the Supreme Court, that will be in the end where we decide, we, where we discover whether there has to be some form of parliamentary process in relation to Article 50. If there has to be, the government will want a very simple motion or bill that you know, pushes it through. But the difficulty for Theresa May, if that happens, is that the opposition will try to amend it, to put conditions there. So they'll still, I think, go with triggering. But the question is, or triggering Article 50, but they'll want to put conditions. And that's the difficulty. Once um, Parliament gets its teeth into any of this process, you know, we have to remember that in the Commons and almost certainly in the Lords, there's a majority against Britain leaving the EU. So the, how the, you know, the, the, the margin of, between um, leave and remain was, what, just under 52% to over 48%. And that means probably a majority of people in Britain want what's now uh, called a sort of softish or non, uh, not, sort of not a particularly hard version of a Brexit. Now, many of those who are in favour want a clean break, those who are in favour of you know, all of this. So... Uh, Parliament is going to have a say eventually, there's no question. Parliament will have a say in all of this, nothing the government can do to stop that. The only question is how much of a say and how much does it constrain the government's hands in the negotiations that are coming up. So it's going to be the whole thing, it's not just a Britain versus, or Britain and the EU and the rest of the world international question, how does all that sort itself out. This has a profound long-term implication for the relationship between government and parliament and therefore for the UK's unwritten or uncodified, or partly written, partly codified constitution. So, uh, you know, this is the beginning of a bigger change inside British government, I suspect. Brexit and Trump's US election victory have led to suggestions that we're entering a new age of populism. Do you think this is a major political paradigm shift or merely a bump in the road? Well, it's to a significant discussion of whether the Brexit vote and Donald Trump's election are evidence of something that, in fairness, uh, people here at the LSE and in other universities have been looking at for some time, which is the rise of new parties, often with simple messages uh, in a number of European countries. There was a big discussion about all of this in the context of Greece a couple of years ago and elsewhere in Europe besides. Now, 
it's interesting that already there's been a sort of rolling counter-response to this. Oh, no, it's not populism, it's just normal politics. Well, in a sense, there is something different going on here. Certainly within British politics, um, the decision to leave the EU is a near-revolutionary step, nearer the British ever get. You know, it, it, it's a remarkable thing to have happened. And it hasn't, in fact, led to a government that's out of line with the norm. Theresa May's Conservative government is a moderate Conservative administration, centre-right administration by international standards. But I think the wider question of whether there are forces at play, uh, forces which represent um, people being fed up, having grievances with the political class in this country and others, which then trigger these revolutionary, uh, in, in the case of Britain, revolutionary change, voting to leave the EU. Elsewhere, the arrival of new parties on the scene, France, elections coming up there, Germany, and so on. I mean, th this clearly is different, and it, it's suggestive that old parties, old centre-left and centre-right parties, are being attacked now from their left and right, and that is arguably part of the normal progress of politics in the UK and elsewhere. Um, whether it's suggestive that the public wants some radical, new, strong leader type politics, I think it's far too early to judge that yet. And you, you begin to see in France a sort of counter-reaction with the ele election by the centre-right of a fairly right-wing candidate to fight Marine Le Pen. Now, whether that's politics reasserting itself, we'll have to wait and find out. 2016 delivered a succession of seemingly unpredictable political events. What do you think we can expect to see in 2017? Well, there's no doubt 2016 has been a remarkable year. You know, first the referendum result in Britain, then the new government falling from that. And then, of course, Donald Trump's uh, equally unexpected election. All the polling had been suggesting, and again, most as with the EU referendum, most received wisdom within the political class in Britain and in the, in the case of America, America had assumed that the traditional view, the traditional candidate would win, didn't happen. Now, uh, as we look forward into 2017, uh, there's a series of elections coming up in the Netherlands, in Germany uh, and in France, or in France and Germany, that way around. And each of those will in its way be a test for the thesis that politics is changing radically and that these splinter parties, often described as populist, but splinter parties are beginning to do better. They may not win the election in the Netherlands outright uh, and they may not win uh, in France and they probably won't win in Germany. Never say never, of course, these days. So, um, uh, but against this background, I think what we can see here is that there are undercurrents of political change, a response to the consequences of global trade and the way those feed through into countries and within countries into local areas, waves of migration uh, affecting many European countries, producing a counter-reaction. All of this uh, is going to feed into these coming elections and into British politics even though Britain isn't due to have a general election until 2020, there is still a debate rumbling away inside British politics of whether Theresa May will hold a general election uh, in 2017. Personally, Theresa May doesn't look like the kind of politician to make a sort of 
gamble, to take a gamble on the general election. But we'll find out during 2017 whether she has difficulties with leaving the EU or with the process of management of her party, which lead her to consider that a, a general election might be the only option. Personally, I doubt it. But uh, as I said a moment ago, we can never say never anymore in British or indeed international politics. Brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us, Tony. Thank you. Thank you.